Greetings, all. Welcome to Aquarian Diary. I'm your host, John Irving. It is July 25th, 2023. Before I get started, I want to point out that I published part two of my fascinating conversation with Deborah Lupien. You can find that on my channel, of course. In that conversation, Deborah describes how Earth shifted into 4D consciousness in June of 2023, so you don't want to miss that. Also, please check to make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel. Other YouTube content creators have noticed that some people are mysteriously unsubscribed. Today, I am very pleased to present a conversation with Dr. Nadine Sullivan. Nadine has very impressive credentials. She has a PhD in sociology and also a degree in anthropology. She's an interfaith minister and a certified hypnotherapist and has published numerous books. As usual, I will put any related links in the episode description, including how you can inquire about an astrology reading with me if that's of interest to you. Don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications if you wish to be notified when I publish part two of this discussion. I hope you'll find this conversation interesting. Hi, Nadine. How are you? I'm really good. It's good to talk to you today. Likewise. Um, I introduced you a little bit uh, before I started the recording here. Let me give a little bit of background about how we connected just to get the ball rolling. Okay. First of all, I did an astrology reading for Nadine and uh, I saw her CV effectively in her email and it was extremely impressive. And then when we actually got around to doing the reading, we ended up chatting a lot because she has a fascinating background and we spent quite a bit of time just chatting without me actually doing the reading. And then uh, at the end of the reading, I put forward the idea of actually talking because I think Nadine might be able to give us a perspective based on her background and teaching and knowledge and wisdom about some core issues that are at play that I think everyone is interested in. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, Nadine? Okay. Well, um, thank you, John. I am a sociologist. Um, my doctorate is in sociology. I also had an undergraduate um, bachelor's degree in anthropology. And I've been teaching at the college level since 2004. I've taught a host of classes, but they generally fall under two broad classifications, either race and immigration or gender and sexuality. They've been the main um, things that I focused on in that field. On the other hand, I was already an ordained minister before I went to graduate school. And um, and in that space, um, I had had a spiritual counseling practice for a while before going to grad school and then resumed my spiritual counseling practice once the uh, homework load lightened up enough that I could do that. And with that, I added hypnotherapy. So I've been um, a practicing hypnotherapist since 2007. Yeah, so uh, what makes you particularly interesting to me, sort of in the same vein as Dr. Scott Becker, who I've spoken to recently, is that you're a scholar, uh, but you're also open and interested in and actually practicing esoteric topics or subjects. Yeah, the, the really cool thing about hypnotherapy is you uh, it allows you to take people into their subconscious 
And then as they're in that state and you're asking, I do hypnotherapy, not just hypnosis, right? So broadly speaking, um, hypnosis is you do an induction, which is a relaxation or guided visualization, and then you make suggestions that might help the person quit smoking. Um, When you're doing hypnotherapy, you're doing the induction. And then there's this whole middle section where for maybe an hour, you're asking the person questions. What do you get out of this? What is this? What is your, how does your subconscious picture this? What does this mean to you? And then you're making the suggestions based on what they've said. So it's a a much more in-depth process and um, it allows people to really get to the core of situations in their lives. I presume you've had some interesting results with this, clearly. I have. You can do... As with this, so with the subconscious intention is everything. And so you can either take somebody back into the past. So you can take them into their childhood or various um, traumatic situations. Maybe if that, if those situations are haunting them in their sleep and they need to, to be able to process them so that they can get a good night's sleep. You can do those kinds of things. You can also give the suggestion that there's, that they should go to a different year before the year in which they were born. And then they will often give you a story of a past life. You can also take them forward in time and ask them to tell you about the next decades of their life coming up or about maybe a different life after this body has expired. You can also, somebody can say, I don't know whether to take job A or job B, and you can give them a a metaphor by which you say, okay, you're going down the road now, you're going five, 10 years into the future with job A, what do you see? What's it like? How are people treating you? you? Do you enjoy it? Okay, come back to the present, now go five, 10 years down the other road, taking the other job. How does that work out? And then they're getting to make their own decisions about what they believe feels right between those two choices. You can do all kinds of things with it. You can do all sorts of, there's a lot of healing to be had as we use it. Sometimes like um, I've had clients who had childhood trauma and when they looked at that under hypnosis, or under hypnotherapy, it's not going to stand up in a court of law. They can't go back and say, you know, my uncle did this to a, to a courtroom. But what they can do is it, it almost doesn't matter whether it's actual memory or a therapeutic metaphor. It's how their subconscious feels about it. It's what their subconscious believes. And so you can then make suggestions for them to be able to let it go, heal, see themselves in a different light, rewrite that narrative, those kinds of, of um so those are the kinds of things I do all the time. I mean, that is incredibly fascinating. I mean, you're effectively talking about time traveling. Yes. Um, they are <laughs> Forwards certainly... and backwards in time. At will. I mean, not, we're, you, we're not taking the physical form in this case, but, but at least in the mind. Yeah. Right. And so instead of me doing a reading for them, instead of me saying, I see you having had a past life as a nun, um, you are taking them in the past and without, like you, you, ethically, you have to be really careful not to implant the suggestions at that point. You're just asking them what they've found, where they've gone. I've also, um, when I began to, to study and get trained in hypnotherapy, I was a graduate student at that time. And I was like, I don't know if I believe in this, right? Let me just Let me just do this and see how it works out. And then as I kept getting hypnotized as part of the training, 
I began to see these past lives. And I was like, oh, after a while, I was like, I know what I've been doing for the past 600 years. And, and so the hypnotherapists I worked with took me into through a past life and then through the death scene of that life and then into the life in between lives, into the world in between, and then back into a new body. And in just, I mean, they weren't telling me what those bodies looked like or what was happening there. They were asking me, go to this place. What do you see? What do you feel? Um, and so in that whole spectrum, it really, it remarkably reduced my fear of death. It helped me deal with my, my mother had already passed. It helped me deal in preparation, preparation for the departure of my father. Um, and it also helped me just kind of see the themes that had been running through my lifetime. And I saw connections to them. I was a child who did have past life memories. I, I <gasps> should add that. So even though I wasn't sure if I believed in hypnotherapy as I started studying it, I had had strong past life memories as a kid. And so, um, but I didn't see those lives where I thought I would, but I did, I did see those things. And so it gave me a, a greater sense of self. I'm a little afraid of myself to go into the future though. Mm. Yeah. Um, Wow, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Like, okay. for, for example, you're uh, just. Can you describe like what you experienced when you yourself were uh, in that state? Were Were you visualizing everything uh, very clearly and with all kinds of detail? And could, could you feel like you did? It feel like you were there, or is it is it like a dream kind of? It's more dreamlike. So there was a there was a case of Bridie Murphy in the 1950s, I think, and you know, lots of discussion about whether that case was real or bogus, whatever, um, setting that aside. Um, that was described as her being there. For me, it's not It's not as clear as if I'm, it's not like the way the room around me looks, you know, clear in 3D. And it's not like as clear to me as if I'm in a movie theater watching a, a Hollywood film. For me, it's hazy and black and white. It's very much like memory. So I have a, a real life memory of being in sixth grade and standing in line. The um, Somehow I went to a Catholic grade school. They had a habit of making us line up boys and girls separate and lining up also um, shortest to tallest. And so I'm at the back of the, the one of the tallest girls at the back of this line. And there's a boy across from me, one of the taller boys. And he leans over and says to me, now this is a, this is a memory I have in real life. And he, he leans over and he says to me, is your mother pregnant again with all this disdain? And I don't know that word because this is back in the day and we didn't use that terminology. We said, you know, my mother would come and say, you're going to have another baby brother or sister or women were in the family way. Nobody said pregnant. And so I looked at him and I said, my mother's not pregnant. And then I went home and told her and she said, honey, <laughs> yes, I am. Because actually <laughs> I'm one of 13 children my mother gave birth to in a span of 14 and a half years. Good Lord. And so she was always pregnant. I just didn't know the word. So what I see in my mind's eye about that day it's a black and white image to me. It's fuzzy. It's like a kind of like an old TV set out of out of focus, right? And he's. I know he's. I know there's this boy. I know he said it. I actually don't remember his name or what he looks like. Um, I know. I know that I'm wearing a dark green, a forest green jumper because that's what our school uniform was. And I know it's got a big gold badge on the chest that says the very long name of the grade school, but I don't see it in gold and green. 
Mm. but I know it. So for, it's memory. I, I will say to clients before their first session, I'll be like, you know, think about the first, the top shelf of your refrigerator or the door of your refrigerator. Where are the condiments? What's on that top shelf? And the way they're seeing that in their mind's eye is the way they're going to see the way things are going to come to them under hypnosis. Cause you're still in control. You're still awake. You're aware they shouldn't call it sleep. It's not. Um, and, but in that state of awareness, your focus, like I still know if I'm under hypnosis, I know what year it is. I know who's president. I, and if there's a, a siren that goes by on the street, I, I go, Oh, fire engine, but I am focused internally instead of externally when I'm under hypnosis. And so it's, it's, it's the, whatever the way memory comes, whatever way you see the top shelf of your refrigerator, the contents, that's the way you'll see it right there. It's probably similar to how you remember dreams if you do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I happen to have very vivid, realistic, hyper-realistic. Uh, I can lucid dream sometimes. Right. So. Now, as far as feeling it though goes, though, um, the other piece of it, even though if I'm under hypnosis and I'm seeing some story I'm telling about a past life, it's coming very slowly. It's coming piece by piece. The person asking the questions is saying, "What's on your feet? What's on your legs?" I'm describing it, and I'm having I'm having to go with it. I'm having to suspend disbelief, um, and and allow myself just to report, to observe and report. And then, but then when I come back and I'm walking around the world for the next days or weeks, it's, there's an emotional component. So, which was how I came to decide that for me, at least, um, it is a tenet of faith to me that we do have more than one life and that, um, that I've had that experience because if, as I came out of the hypnotherapy and I'm walking around, it's like, I could feel the emotion of that life. I could, it's got, it's got something that's sort of lasting and you're just kind of like, that, you know, something about it feels like that really, that really was me. And, and also, you know, the question was starting, the starting impetus was something that was bothering me in this life. I go see some past life and tell a story about the reason I'm doing this now is because of what happened then. And then after seeing that, I'm able to change what I do in the present. So it's yeah. empowering. Do your clients or does the subject recall all of this or is it something that you record and that they access later or what both most clients recall good portions of it um i have had probably two clients that dropped into such a deep trance state they claimed not to be aware of any of it at the time though they were recording i leave it up to the client whether or not we re- we record i recommend they record yeah. Um, but those clients were like were startled list because they thought they fell asleep and nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> Something did. Um they must be shocked when they hear the recording. They, yes, but most most people don't go quite that deeply. Um and so they they are reporting this story. And like for me, every so often your conscious mind jumps up and says, You're making this up. And you have to go. Shh, I'm paying her. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs> and like, just stay with reporting whatever images, impressions, feelings, or you know, are coming. Some people aren't visual, and and then they're like, "Well, I feel this," and you're like, "Just go with it." Yeah, and you told me also, which I thought was yeah. really interesting, is that you can do this remotely. Yes, when the pandemic hit, 
um, I was able, only one client wouldn't go virtual. And so I kept all of my you know, clients in the practice at that point. And it turned out to be better in office. So a person under hypnosis often kind of whispers. And my couch was some distance from the couch they were laying on. And so sometimes people would say something and I couldn't quite hear them. So I would say, just tell me more, <laughs> tell me more. And occasionally somebody whispered so much, no matter what I did or you know what suggestions I made, that they pretty much have to tell me everything they said afterwards because I couldn't hear them. That doesn't happen on Zoom. On Zoom, even if they don't have on earphones um, or a, you know a special microphone system, I I'm able to hear them and um, and they're able to hear me and that's all I need. I don't need I actually don't need to see the person. Um, a lot of hypnotherapists will watch the their clients' body language and motion and you know see if their eyes are blinking or whatever. I don't do that. I close my own eyes and allow my spirit to kind of channel the induction so it's different every time. Mm. And then I'm I've got my eyes closed almost all of the time because I'm listening internally to see based on what they're saying, what's the next logical question I should ask them, but also what's the next question I'm led to ask them. Right. And, and then, you know, so, so my eyes are closed. So I, a lot of my clients on zoom, like they go lay down across the the room somewhere and I can't really see them anymore, but as long as we can hear each other, it works gorgeously. It's fabulous. My intuition is uh, screaming at me that there's probably a lot of people wondering, mm -hmm. is this QHHT or something else? It is not. Um, uh -huh, because this is, in this truth, is interesting. Yeah. In truth, um, the reason I have not done QHHT is because um, it's expensive. Uh, <laughs> and um, the, the training for it is prohibitive um, for somebody. At the point I first looked at it, I was still a struggling graduate student with a new hypnotherapy practice of my own, and I'd already had the training I had. Um, so I kind of choked on the price point. Um, the other, I so I don't know what the difference is. I, I do and have been trained in past life regression and between life regression and future life progression. And then also as a sociologist, while I'm, I'm not a psychologist and I make sure I tell my clients that, um, but as a sociologist, I am a scholar of gender and sexuality. I've got a book that I've written on domestic violence and sexual assault um, and recovery from that. And so I, um, I'm qualified to take people into the spaces they need to go in that way. It, the Dolores Cannon folk um, make claims about getting people probably, I'm probably getting people into alpha or theta, light theta. They're kind of claiming to get into deep theta. So, and their, their sessions are longer from what I can tell as an outsider. I believe their average session is three hours. Um, my average session is about 80 minutes but people do more than one. Um, so, yeah, so it's not, so I've got nothing against QHHT. And if I can, you know, at some point fit it into my schedule, now that I can afford it, I would consider um, taking that training, but it's, uh, yeah, it was one of the more expensive ones out there at the time. What matters is that it works. Right. And, and it does work. Yeah. It's, it's you know, there's another really interesting piece about um, hypnotherapy is that, it played a role in a lot of our current spiritual movements. 
So if we think of the Edgar Casey material, and um, and that was popular enough that in my Catholic high school with only a physical library to use in the little township I lived in, I was able to write a, a term paper on Edgar Casey and Christian reincarnation as a junior in high school. So, but if we think about the Casey material, Casey got his start as a trance healing medium from being someone who needed healing and who was hypnotized as a way of dealing with whatever was going on with his throat and recovering his, his ability to speak through hypnosis. Um, I, I and my sister made a journey across New York state to visit, visit a town called Lilydale. Um, unfortunately, when we were there, it was just before the 4th of July and the Canadian wildfires were pretty thick um, across the, across Lake Erie into the Western New York that day. But um or during those days. But in Lilydale, um, the start of the spiritualist movement, which is kind of this, which is sort of at the core of there with the old occult and the new age kind of space. But it's also, it was a big religion in the United States. Um, and it is still a big religion in the United Kingdom. But are we talking about the 1800s spiritualism? Yeah, yeah, and in the 1800s with the Fox sisters who were influenced by some, somebody who practiced mesmerism that had been there. Now, part of the reason I went there this July is because it came to my awareness that Susan B. Anthony and Matilda Jocelyn Gage and a number of um, early feminists and suffragists went there a lot. So from my records, it looks like um, Susan B. Anthony was there speaking at least six times. And... Um, you know, so I was looking for that information in their library as well, like that connection. But one of the things about that spiritualist movement was women were entirely equal in it. They were also equal in Quakerism, but that's also a meditative practice. If you go to a Quaker meeting, mm -hmm. you sit in the silence for 45 minutes and they don't they don't preach. They don't sing. You just sit in the silence. And so um but I uh, so I'm looking for those spaces, that intersection between, um, you know, real equality for women real liberation for women and um and spiritualism or that which is of spirit yeah i was told my great grandmother was a, was in, involved in the spiritualism movement oh really oh yeah. wow that's cool yeah 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 um was she also a suffragist uh, my family were pretty progressive right yeah yeah getting chills saying that yeah. um so I've been told that she, my grand grandmother is kind of around me at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of the things that stood out to me. One was your early childhood experiences. And I should ask you about that. The mm -hmm. other was that it sounds like you yourself are sort of using psychic or, in, or intuitive abilities, if not channeling abilities when you're practicing. Right. In the hypnotherapy sessions. Yeah. yeah. Which is really interesting. Um, and it makes it more interesting for me too, right? Because if I did the same old induction every time, just reading something, <laughs> that's, you know, that would put me to sleep. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so when I was a kid, um, and a lot of children have experiences. My, my, one of my daughters would, has said some things when she was a toddler and one of my grandsons, well, both of my grandsons have said some uh, interesting and unusual things as toddlers that they've since outgrown and forgotten. But um, I had, I had very, I had very visceral reactions to hearing about certain forms of death as a child um, with the kind of sense that I knew what it felt like. Hmm. Um, and so 
I had an, I had an intense visceral emotional reaction anytime someone mentioned burning at the stake. I had a particular oh dear, dear. yeah. I had a Halloween where I was dressed as a witch and some neighborhood child said to me, witches aren't real. And I got really angry and started yelling, yes, we are. Yes, we are. Like, <laughs> How old were you at this time? Uh, seven. Wow. <laughs> you know? cool. And then um, my brother would take the little plastic there. We had the little ugly, um, tiny plastic cowboy and Indian set, you know, very um, racist, the set. But anyway, he would, he would be the cowboy. I'd be the Indian. He'd shoot me and say, you're dead. And I'd start yelling at him. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm still. And I would have this feeling as I walked. So I had very long, straight hair and I had a mile walk to my grade school. And as I would walk along sometimes, and it happened, you know, 20 times a year for a long time, but I'd be walking along, the wind would lift my hair and I would have this intense feeling of being male on horseback with a spear in my hand and like naked from the waist up, right? Native American. Yeah, and I I didn't like, I wasn't like, trying to put it in that framework, I just would suddenly have this feeling. And so that's as a child and it happened routinely um, up up into my teens. But in 2009, which is well past my teens, I was driving across the Northern part of the United States. My brother was moving to San Francisco and we took a lot of routes named 80 something um, from (laughs) Philadelphia. We went across, we went through near Pittsburgh. We went across by Chicago. We went through, I think, Yellowstone and then swung down through um, Wyoming and northern Nevada and then over Donner. We skipped um, Las Vegas, but over Donner Pass into north of San Francisco. But as we got west of Chicago and before we got to the Dakotas where the Pine Ridge Reservation is, we're just driving along and all of a sudden I had that thing again. And I was this man, but I was this male but I wasn't on horseback. I was kind of watching over a rise, watching these this this white people come through, watching like wagons and and people and soldiers and whatever. And um, but that sensation, this sense of altered identity, was really intense once I got west of Chicago and stayed with me even through the overnight stay in a, in a motel to get rest before driving again, stayed with me until, until we got to the the Dakotas where it lifted. And so I was like, Oh, I guess I wasn't Lakota. (laughs) I don't know what I, but that just that sense of, you know, being in a different, but I had like, I wasn't in this body in my um, sense of self. It seems to me that that's not very common that people have, uh, can recall aspects of past lives without without some form of uh, technique like what you practice now. So it is and it's not. If we look at the work of um, Dr. Ian Stevenson, and I think he was from the University of Virginia, but a man named Dr. Jim Tucker continues that work. Um, Stevenson did, he went to where children had spontaneous past life memory, and he took their stories, got whatever the family said, whatever the child was still saying. These were children who were generally old enough to speak well, circa three years old and younger than six or, you know, like somewhere in that window. And oftentimes they were children in, you know, India or something because we're so opposed to it here in the United States. And it's part of the religious belief system um, there for most people. So there would be 
the parents didn't discount it there the same way. So there were there are American examples that Jim Tucker's worked with too, but most of Stevenson's um, results were overseas. But they would then this child would be telling a story about you know how he fell off this roof and how his head got hurt and how he died and how what his wife's name was and what town he lived in, and Stevenson would take the child there with family and whatever and the kid would lead them through the streets up to a particular house walk up to somebody and say you know and start talking to them and the family would start crying because this child would be telling them things that the child had no way to know and you know accurate memories about the person who had died and about who they were to that person um he also had he he did a, another book where um a lot of the children had birthmarks that the children connected to past life deaths and that when they and many of them, they were able to follow out and find that the who the child claimed to be did. Ha, there was somebody by that name who had died in that way that matched that birthmark in the child's body. Wait, so you're saying the birthmark uh, related to a scar or a wound or something? Yeah, like a club foot or a scar. Like, yes. Um, yeah, a lot of babies are like where they're born with a red spot or where my one grandson's got kind of speckliness around his name. It almost looks like buckshot i <laughs> have never hypnotized him and he would he wouldn't let me if i tried right now not at his current age but um don't know what that was but i had a child i had one child client who had he had three little red dots on his forehead slightly raised and he was a 10 year old um child and he kept and he was um he was latinx he kept telling me that they were that he had this huge they were they were ugly they were horns he had these three horns on his forehead and he's telling me that no girl will want to i'm like you're 10 he's like no girl's going to want to date me and you know he's going on and on and on about how ugly and deformed he is and so i did a hypno you know did hypnotherapy with him and did a past life well i just started asking him to tell me about that like go imagine some other person somewhere who had the you know who has this this deformity. And he starts to tell a story about being African-American and running from a group of white men. And he, uh, to get away from them, he crashes through a plate glass window and he gets cut in that region of his forehead. And then he goes on and, and they set upon him and, and he's killed. And so this is some 10 year old kid who does not know the history of race or racism in the United States and, you know, or any of that. But he tells this story and um, and I make the appropriate suggestions after he defines his story. I make the suggestions about letting that go and seeing that he's safe now and he's in a, you know, a different body and he doesn't need that, you know, anymore. And the next time I saw him, I started to ask him about, you know, his forehead and, and the girls in school. And he's like, oh, what this, this is nothing. Oh, he said, I got a new girlfriend, her name's whatever. And he starts, he like his whole, his whole attitude and personality changed toward this thing once he told this story about a past life death so do you have any explanation as to why uh, like okay so what you just described was mm -hmm. through suggestion or right logic or whatever that the person realized that uh, this is something that didn't occur in this lifetime you don't need to hold mm -hmm. on to that kind of but there's an aspect of them clearly that didn't know that when they were incarnating. Why do these things carry over to that extent that they would actually manifest physiologically? It's a bit odd. So I have a hypothesis. I don't have any, there's no way to prove these things, right? right. But my hypothesis is this. So I have personal experience in this life of manifesting. Um, it's not as 
slick and easy as the book, The Law of Attraction made it sound, not no slamming on that, but it just sometimes to manifest something, you really have to stand your ground against unbelievable odds. But but anyway, I have experience of being able to decide a thing and then take hold of it and kind of create it in the quantum physical realm and bring it into my life. So what happens um, with what I what I believe happens because of Stevenson's work and, and Jim Tucker's work that shows this connection between current body issues and past and reported past lives i think so it's, it's always the death scene it's not something happened in the middle of a life the person got better from it and then they brought it over it's the death scene right so it seems to be unprocessed memory so the child who's uh, the person who's dying the man who's dying with a cart rolling over and crushing his foot or a tractor or whatever, and then he comes back with a club foot as a baby. Um, that's like he died without the thing getting a chance to heal. So that's my that's my best hypothesis is that it's a form of it's like something written into our quantum nature that manifests itself because it's not processed. Yeah. So uh, the reverse would be true, too, wouldn't it? If somebody died a natural, peaceful death, they might not have yes. any remnants of it physically and they might not then have any past life memories as well right so because really? they don't have the trauma yeah. as a trigger right yeah yeah wow. if without the trauma um yeah without the trauma as a trigger then yeah maybe there's nothing there to to bring that forward in that way um one of the things i needed help with so i've got five published books right now all available on amazon but um the i had a hypnosis i had not published any of them and um, a friend kept saying, you need to do this. You need, you know, you, you keep writing, but you're not publishing. And so she made me go, you know, get, get, have that question asked under hypnosis. Why are you not publishing? And I tell this story to the hypnotherapist about being like a, a, a teenage boy, late teen, early 20s, somewhere in that space. Um, and I'm just a typesetter. I am, you know, like Ben Franklin's printing press. I'm putting little blocks of letters in so that we can ink it. And somebody else has written a political pamphlet where, and this isn't, you know, Ben Franklin. I'm not actually in, saying that I'm in his space, but um, I'm somewhere I'm a typesetter and somewhere someone has written this political pamphlet and I and this other guy are setting the type and we run off the copies of the pamphlet and the powers that be politically are angry about this pamphlet and they can't get to the author. The author's published it anonymously. I don't know that we even knew who the author was, but they kill us. Wow. And so in the, you know, so in this, I'm reporting being killed for doing that, you know, for doing this. And then the, I'm saying that's why I'm not publishing now. And so then the hypnotherapist is like, okay, well, you can see, you can let that go. You're safe here and now. And, you know, within uh, a few months, one of the books I'd already written, I, I, bothered to publish i moved forward right and um incredible so it made it makes that kind of shift um of wow fears i've had people who were terrified a lot of people are terrified of buzzing insects because they could be bees and they could get stung and um oftentimes for clients that have had those kind of phobias there's nothing in this life that explains it um but you know they go and they tell some story about you know something awful like somebody tying them down and then doing something to attract the bees and then them being stung to death or, you know, some kind of story like that. And then 
you know, you make the appropriate suggestions again, that this is not them and they're safe now. The one client that comes to mind actually worked in an outdoor flower market and could barely make herself go to work. And if she heard something buzz near her, she'd like run out into traffic to get away from it. She'd get like hysterical about it. And um, and so afterwards, you know, she called to say thank you because she could work her job now. She's like, I still don't love them, but I don't run away anymore. And I, are, you, are you able to tell us what happened to her? Yeah, well, I mean, yes, she continued to work. She was fine. Oh, you mean in that life? Yeah, it was yeah. something like like being um being tied down and and i haven't yeah. even heard of that before it's just a horrible idea like that's and, and i hadn't heard of it until like it was something she said under hypnosis so i'll have to put an advisory at the beginning of this yeah. video for those <laughs> um, who are queasy but she did not in the session she wasn't suffering like she didn't re-suffer the being stung she's seeing it and reporting it but she's not feeling like on my couch she's not feeling stung again you know right. she's not so it's not it's not like we relive it in hypnosis we just see it and report it so this could apply to basically a lot of phobias a lot of phobias Right. Those those are rational phobias that like doesn't make any sense why this person is afraid of closed spaces or, you know, heights. Um, yeah. All of that. The example you were talking about where you were publishing, it, mm -hmm. it might the thought went through my mind that that's something that you might be able to document historically. Mm, right. Right. Have you ever been able to do something like that in any case? I have not. One of the problems with it is this. And um I believe Stefan Schwartz talks about how in the how that part of our mind, um, that part of the subconscious is not that good with names and numbers and such. So the public persona of hypnosis um, contains a lot of um, being able to go and find out that somebody's name was Belle Smith and they lived in 1852 in Dublin and then go find her. You know, Ian Stephen was, Stevenson was able to do that with live children reporting that stuff in their waking state. But under hypnosis, um, I myself am bad at coming up with my name in a past life or the date of where I'm at. When it does work for a client, it's like, directing them to go see if there's a calendar around or directing them to go see if they can, it depends on who they are. If they're a peasant, like nothing's written down so much, mm. but maybe if they're a businessman working in his office, see if he's got a nameplate on his desk. If we can do those things, we can sometimes get that kind of documentation. But the subconscious, what we bring back is the, we bring back talents and fears, <laughs> um, but we we bring back the emotion of it, the impression of it, and not so much like the things that um, could prove it to the the materialist uh, mindset. Yeah, I would suggest that it. I mean, you're much you're much more of an expert at this than I am. But just I was just thinking about like for example, I had a mm -hmm. had an experience in my youth, and it was there was a situation. It was kind of, there was like a protest going on that mm -hmm. I just went to observe because it was a big thing in the city I grew up in. Right. And I remember, and then the police showed up, like, you know, oh. with their with their mm -hmm. shields and clubs and stuff. They didn't attack me uh, mm -hmm. because I happened to be on the other side of a fence. 
but I just went into a rage. Like, mm-hmm. like I started screaming and swearing at them, like F you and just like, mm-hmm. and the cop, this one cop just kind of stopped and looked at me because I was a young person. I wasn't mature, fully mature. Right. And, and, and then I just caught myself when I went like, whoa, what was that? You know, where did right. that come from? Right. And then I afterward and later on, I thought, oh, I must have had an experience with authorities like where I was, you know, who knows what happened to me mm-hmm. um, because it seemed irrational. Right. So that wasn't a phobia per se, but it was triggered by circumstances. But it would be an interesting place to start with a past life regression mm. would be to take that feeling like a, you do a little guided visualization, relaxation, and then, okay, take that feeling hold it and now go to the origin of that yeah. level of that emotion and and it's it's kind of like sometimes i've used the metaphor of like you've there's a blizzard and you've tied a, a clothesline from the house to the barn so you can get to the barn right and you walk along holding that clothesline so you don't get lost out in the blizzard it's like walk along that clothesline and go to where it's anchored right find where that started and people tell the most interesting stories about that um, yeah so it yeah my point was that obviously that it's, it might not literally be a phobia that it just might be there's all this subconscious stuff that we're not right. even really most of the time we're not aware of and we we operate on those things right um it affects our personalities and our behavior and uh, therefore our whole lives at one point I was being asked under hypnosis, uh, I had asked the hypnotist to ask me why I kept eating these cookies, right? Because <laughs> I was having a, an ongoing struggle with my weight. And I'm like, you know, just take me there and ask me. So the, the hypnotherapist is asking me, what are you getting out of this? Why are you doing this? Right? Because I ate like it was a job. And um, <laughs> and so, and like the cookies had to be finished. They just kept calling me two more, two more, two more, you know, gone in 12 hours, Right. And so um, under hypnosis, I start to see, um, trigger warning, I start to see a sexual assault scene from um, something, something barbarian, something perhaps Germanic forest, something, I don't know, 1100s, 1300s, something way back like that. And, um, And then it connects... So, you know, and I'm a young girl. So that connects then to a memory, a conscious memory I had, but now I'm, I'm in hypnosis. So it's coming up for me with more emotion because I'm I'm in hypnosis, in hypnosis, remembering that when I was about 17, I had had a thought one day that maybe if I gained weight, some of the creepy men in the neighborhood would stop, you know, running up on the sidewalk when I walked by kind of like, there was a lot of, there's a lot of sexual harassment that happens if I'm have a class of undergraduate young women, um, they will very quickly recognize street harassment, right? And so yeah, a lot I've of that. And so I'm having that that feeling, maybe if I get fat, that'll stop happening. And so I'm connecting those two in the subconscious state and I start sobbing, not which people don't usually sob under hypnosis, but I start sobbing that it's not safe to be a pretty girl. And then the hypnotherapist kindly reminded me I was in my 50s. <laughs> and so she's like, so is that your issue now? 
And it's like, no. So she, then she begins to make suggestions that I don't need to finish the cookies anymore. And immediately after that hypnotherapy, I lost in the next, you know, three months, I lost 40 pounds. Um, I found myself going, why do, why am I eating this? Like, I don't even like store-bought cookies. I actually only like <laughs> mother's homemade ones. And, you know, and I, I actually went to a, an ice cream stand and threw away the cone after a couple of bites. I was like, this isn't, I don't like that. And so well, it maybe totally, there's a similar yeah, explanation. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a similar explanation for, you know, maybe that uh, something like that explains why I have this crazy YouTube channel. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Because maybe it connects to a past life in which you <laughs> didn't have a voice. Yeah, I don't know. I don't well, know. No, actually, or maybe I'm just it. trying to offend as many people as possible so they'll leave me alone. One of the interesting things about you, and one of the reasons that I gave myself the birthday present of uh, of a um, astrological reading with you, is you know when you talk about Cassandra, about um, being that voice of one crying in the wilderness that nobody's listening to because nobody <laughs> wants to hear what you're saying. Um, I really resonate with that as a as a sociologist watching what's happening in the world around me. Oh. Uh, you know, and and everybody see not everybody, but many, many people, the majority of people seem sort of blithely unaware, even even other faculty, even like just I'm I'm looking forward and seeing a, a train coming down the tracks heading straight for us. And everybody else is just going, yeah, we'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. OK, you had to go there. So you've got you, this channel gives you a voice. Yeah. Well, yeah, you had to go there, but we weren't quite finished <laughs> with because okay, so I want to go there. I, I, okay. I want to go there for sure. And in fact, before we started recording, we already went there. <laughs> but okay. um, because that's the other aspect of you that I think is really mm-hmm. interesting uh, amongst many others. But I had a couple. Uh, oh, geez. Hang on a second. Mm-hmm. I just I got I got to roll back my mind. Um, <laughs> the other thing that you. Oh, I was going to ask you. How far back, like sort of what you're describing, you would think that if people are being triggered by death in past lives, that for the most part, they would be lives that preceded the current one. So, but you also described one that you felt might go back to like the 1100s. So how does that work or, or how far back do you go? So different people report different things. And different people do different numbers of sessions, right? A lot of people only do enough. They go, they go see two or three lives. They call it a day. Um, that's then. So we don't know if they have more lives or not. Um, because I was working in the field and training in the field, I went back over and over again. Um, I have seen something ice age of wow. my um, most of what I've seen has been since the 1500s. Um, but my last life, the last death I saw in a in a regression session um, was me dying in 1941 and being born into this incarnation um, 12 years later. Wow. So, was it in uh, the war that that occurred? Yes. I mean, but I, were you, I mean, was I, it a, was it a, was it related to the war? Yes, but I what I saw was I saw myself as a um, I was a female journalist. Um, I saw myself as 
perhaps not making much money at it and having family that could just afford to let me do this thing. But, um, but I was interviewing, I saw myself interviewing women about the question of um, like the status of women in different countries. And I had seen myself interviewing some women in England who were wives of, you know, lords or whatever, like high ups in government and stuff. And, um, and writing about how, if he divorced her, she had nothing, right? Writing about the the actual lack of power that was still there for a wife, even in the most elite setting. And then I saw myself um, in a in North Africa trying to to do some interviewing and being dropped off at a like the train letting me out at the station. And someone was supposed to pick me up, and no one showed. And so I stood for a long time, not sure what to do because my ride wasn't, but I was supposed to be somewhere to interview somebody or do something. And so I made the choice to start walking. And somewhere after I began walking, gunfire rang out. And what came to me in the hypnotherapy session was that it was friendly fire, but that I had accidentally walked in as a battle was just about to begin. And, And then my concern as I'm leaving the body, because what happens then is, in the in the hypnosis, I see myself suddenly outside my body, and I, I'm my spirit's leaning over, gripping the shoulders of my dead body, yelling, "But the book's not done. The book's not done." And then something begins to sort of pull me away to try to tractor beam feeling, um, and and as I'm leaving, as I'm like sort of going air quotes up you know, going into the spirit realm to whatever's pulling me away from the body, I'm concerned that my friend won't know what that my friends and family back in the States won't know what happened to me. And something assures me that they will, and I'm gone. And so the Uh. person I saw was my friend in that life, though, was my father's mother. And so after that, I said to my dad, who was still, you know, still here at that at that time, I said, Dad, did, um, you know, did grandma and grandpa did, you know, speaking of his mom, did, did they have any friends who were journalists? And he went, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They had, they had my grandfather on his side had, um, had had a number of stores and had some wealth that he lost later and did not leave to us. But, um, but he said, oh yeah, yeah. Um, They, you know, when they were in Manhattan, they had, you know, every Friday night they had journalists over and he said, even, even Ed Sullivan. And I was like, Ed Sullivan was a journalist and no relation. And I was like, he was a journalist. It's like, yeah, yeah. Before he was on TV. And I said, well, did they know any female journalists? And my father said, oh, I wouldn't know that. And so that like, so the trail went cold. But um, the other thing about me is that at the age of 14, I had my own newspaper column in the local paper in this life. Um, wow. And if I, so it, so if there's I, the past life, and it's also right. in the same lineage. Right, right. Literally. Yeah, <laughs> that's, my, that's incredible. Right. And, and so in that past life, I had seen my grandmother holding my dad as a toddler on her hip, right? And then here he, you know, but also... Um, you know, when I did begin to write for the newspaper at, I mean, if they offered me a, a chance to write about what was happening at my high school, but nobody had to teach me how to do journalism. I immediately knew that you had to do the what, where, why, and when in the first paragraph. And, That's you know, so if cool. I pull them out, it's like, it looks like an adult wrote them, you know? Um, yeah. So, well, yeah. So and, uh, <laughs> and, and of course, I'm sure a lot of people are fascinated by the idea of going forward. <laughs> in time 
What yes. can you tell us about that? Like, I mean, that's phenomenal. Like, do, do you want to know? But they also say that time isn't linear. So hmm. they do. The quantum physicists and whatever are hypothesizing it's all layered and and that a future life might actually be a past life if there are such things like all of that. Um, I have had a couple of people who did want to go forward. Well, a lot of people want to go forward to know, should I take this job or what is my purpose? One of the metaphors I use often is I'll be like, um, go to the time you're an old man or an old woman sitting on your front porch. You're at the end of your life. And um, and you are, you know, in your rocking chair and you're looking back over your memories and what's going to make you say, I spent it well. Right. Because I myself feel like I'm I'm like racing the clock to please the old woman on the porch someday. Right. So I'll take them forward and like, OK, you're at the end of your life. Look back. What are you satisfied with? What what? Because they, they don't have a sense of purpose. And so if they're looking back and they see what gives them satisfaction as they're, you know, at their end of their life, then they're seeing what mattered to them, right? So doing using that as the metaphor, some people going forward in that way have seen unfortunate climate um, changes. Oh, geez. There's another, so there's another not, wormhole for us to go right, down. So that, that's, not, um, that's not fun when they see that stuff. How um, far into the future is it? Well, that would be this incarnation. So I guess you're looking at like 30, 40 years at the most, right? One person saw a future incarnation on the earth in which humanity was living inside of domes. They couldn't go outside. Uh, one of your clients. One of my clients. About yeah, well, I've heard I've heard that from other sources as well. Um, so it's terrifying. Like, it, we should be whatever was happening for that. food. Yeah, you know, the the water and the air and the soil were poisoned enough that um, that's how they were having to live. Right. Um, they were living. They existed as a species, but they they were not. Um, they didn't have what we have. Yeah, because we did. We basically destroyed our biosphere because we're stupid right. and greedy. Right. They had pictures of trees. No trees. Um, uh, well, you know, we're probably going to have to come back or some of us will have to come back here yeah. and go through that experience. I, I'm really I hoping not to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> are, are, are you so you're what you described was going forward to the in, in this life. And I have a story about that, too. Right. Well, other people have gone forward in this life and gone. Sometimes it's like, go 10 years forward. And they're like, I'm not here. I'm like, oh, God, I shouldn't. Oh, shit. <laughs> right. OK. That's you have to be careful. Metaphor. Yes, that's metaphor. Uh, or they saw a disaster happen sometime in a, in a period of time. Go ahead. Oh well, I was gonna I was gonna say um, I once had a very striking experience. This was, would be in my twenties. Mm -hmm. I was studying stonemasonry with British stonemasons, uh, which is a very highly skilled craft. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was studying to be a sculptor. And wow. uh, which is something I always wanted to do since I was a child, because I mm -hmm. was very good at it, very mm. good with my hands. And mm. um, it's a multi it, it takes many, many years of training to become a good stonemason. So one might have done it in a former life. if Well, good perhaps. It yeah. And I was naturally gifted at trigonometry and geometry, too. Oh, wow. So, yeah, um, like I was the top in my grade. But wow. um I had this dream in my early 20s mm -hmm. where I saw myself when I was about, I would know, I would say 60 years old. I was looking in a mirror 
and I mm -hmm. saw myself and I, and in the dream, I looked at my hands and I knew that I was like in Bermuda or so, cause stonemasons go all over the world to restore right. buildings. Uh, mm -hmm. and they can spend months or years restoring these buildings because mm -hmm. there's very few people around who can do this anymore. And so they're in mm -hmm. high demand, you know, they get paid quite well, but it's right. hard physical work still, right? right, right. These stones weigh 200 pounds and stuff. So, um, and I saw myself and I looked in the mirror and I was just like, whoa. So I had been picked. I was like the top pick to be an apprentice. And I walked in that day and quit. Because, because. I'm like, because the dream showed me if I stayed on that path, where, what my life would be and how I would end up. And was it lonely or something or was it? It was just like. I knew I had a lot more potential than that. Mm -hmm, right. So the dream was a warning kind of, it was like I was, it was a fork in the road. If I went right. down that path, I, there would, you know, the, that's the other thing. They travel a lot. So they're always, they're often single, mm -hmm. you know, cause they can be gone for months at a time and stuff. And so you're working with men, you're working with men all the time. You know, you're, it's right. just, you know, and they're, a lot of them are British and, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I'm like, Oh God, you know, like, uh, do I really, is that what I really want to do with my life? And like I said, it, it, the dream scared me because it was so visceral. I saw exactly, I knew where, I knew where I was. I knew what I looked like. I, I saw myself in the mirror. My, uh, my features had changed a lot. Cause you know, you're working outdoors all the time and stuff. Right. And I, so, I'm just like, I didn't come here to do that. Right. Right. What you liked was working with stone. Well, I'm just naturally gifted at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, um, but mm -hmm. like, as a life path, I mean, look at what I'm, I wouldn't be doing this, for example. Right. If I had gone down that path. And you wouldn't path. have gotten to use your intellect in the same way. No, not at all. So it might have just been past life habits. Or I felt at the time that, the because I, dreaming is my thing. Like I I have very, like I can lucid dream. <laughs> it, right. And I have very, very vivid. It's hard. I don't even know if I could describe it. It's almost like as real as life, you know, but I know right. I'm dreaming. Right. And, yeah. and my spiritual name is actually pertains to dreaming. So mm. it's like my thing. But my point was, though, that um, that was an experience of seeing myself, you know, at that time, it would have been 40 right. years or more down the road. Mm -hmm. Right. And I knew I knew why I had the dream, too. That's the other thing. I know why I'm having these dreams. So it was a message. So just mm. to your point about going into the future um, mm -hmm. and how people can judge their path or their course that they're on based on the future is <laughs> really interesting. But I was also interested about the potential to go into future lives, not just right. this. Is that, is that something that you can do? Yeah. So the one person living in the domes, that was a future life. Um, a lot of people have not wanted to go. It has not been a main focus just because of clients needs, right? It's not right not been what they've been coming with. It's not uh, as pragmatic. I am both scared to do it now and also really interested in doing it now because of the um, the stuff out there about remote viewing. It's a, it's a way to remote view the future. Yeah. You know, if, um, if somebody, I think, you know, ethically I would have to let a client, like the client would have to be willing to be part of kind of a project on doing it um well not... this this raises some really profound questions yeah. mm -hmm. uh like because a lot of people you know a lot of people say well we have free will mm -hmm. 
But if you can already go into a future life that, as far as you're concerned, hasn't happened yet, and there are circumstances playing out there, uh, how does that affect free will? I mean, is it possible that I could do something a year from now that would negate that whole future life? You know what I mean? Or And if time isn't linear, then how does that... How does free will play into all this? So, yes, um, there's, what was it I was reading? Um, for, forgive me, whoever I'm failing to cite here, um, but something I was reading recently, they were talking, the talk was about the experiments that were done. Oh, you know what it was? It might've been, I was listening on tape to um, to the book, The Power of Eight, about intention. Um, and there were, projects being done in which um is that mctaggart i think is her last name the but um the idea was so there was an experiment there were experiments set up in which um something is that where it was something about the number of counts there was a radioactive isotope that was putting off pings every so many seconds or the random number generator stuff and if if somebody paid attention to it in a wind, like if it was a recording of this isotope putting out these, these, I guess they're sounds at regular intervals. If a section of that was locked away and untouched and another section was listened to by humans, when there was a hearer or an observer of some sort, the data could be changed. Things that were random would become non-random. <laughs> so the... The implications then are, and so maybe I maybe it's not wise to do a project of too much future viewing because the implications then are that if um, if we look into the future, we may cause it to be locked down in a way that it's not naturally locked down now. Right. Yeah, there's also the concept of the multiverse, which is that there are multiple timelines and that timelines spin off and split off all the time. Mm -hmm. That there are trillions, if not an infinite number of realities occurring simultaneously. Right. And that any choice you you don't make, some other you makes and lives it out in a different space. Right. Yeah, that's one uh, of the things that Dolores Cannon did talk about was time. She said that there was going right. to be a timeline split occurring here roughly at this point in time that was going mm -hmm. to be a very significant one, that literally there would be two, the, the paths would diverge, and mm -hmm. that over to, over the span of a number of years, in the early to mid-2020s, what would happen is that initially people would be flipping back and forth between the two timelines, mm -hmm. but then as, it, as they diverged more, there would come a point where it would be impossible to go from what from A to B, and then mm -hmm. you were kind of baked in on either timeline. I I did sort of go to sleep one night in November of 2016, feeling I was in one country and woke up feeling like I was in a different one. Yeah. So I mean, I we you know, it's probably way. it's probably beyond our ability to comprehend the complexity mm -hmm. of it. So yeah. I don't I don't know. I'm not. I wouldn't necessarily dissuade your, you from exploring future realities because. Mm -hmm. Who right. it might not matter. <laughs> Maybe right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Right. I mean, it's 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 absolutely fascinating because, I mean, the implications of all this, if if it can be validated, or you know, I did have a client one time. She came. She was, um, she completely anonymous, and you know, actually, there's 
there's um, multiple people for whom something like this is at least partially true. So just, uh, you know, protecting confidentiality. But um, she was trying to leave an abusive relationship. And then I, I took her forward in time and she saw herself with a five-year-old son at a ball game. And she saw the abusive relationship person in the distance, but she saw herself standing with a different male partner watching the son play ball. She was not at that time pregnant. The next time I saw her, the abuser had um, failed to uh, do what he usually did. He had failed to withdraw and she was pregnant. And five years from the first hypnosis, um, she was standing at a ball game with her husband who was not the abuser, but the, um, the abuser had indeed gotten her pregnant and was not giving up parental rights. And so he was also watching the same, you know, sports game that Incredible. The mom and the stepdad were. <laughs> so that, that kind of tripped me out. Cause I was, um, I was <laughs> thinking this was much more hypothetical than it actually turned out to be. Yeah. Oh, well, you've, you've certainly picked a fascinating vocation mm -hmm. here. This is just, I mean, it must be endlessly amazing. You, you must get your mind blown all the time. It is. And, and so, you know, I have to tell people all the times that the past stuff doesn't matter if it's memory or metaphor, right? It's still therapeutic, but it is the, the human mind um, and the human experience is endlessly fascinating. Um, it does not get boring doing this. You never know what somebody's going to say. No, I mean, if if at some point you want to explore the future, I mean, God, you could spend lifetimes doing that. Yeah, yeah. And, and that that's a nice segue back to the other point that I had asked you about, which is, so I had to I had to I had to come back to another train of thought that we left back there in the past, or maybe it's mm -hmm. the past, or maybe it's the present, or maybe it's the future, um, <laughs> which is uh, your psychic abilities and intu and intuitive abilities, how they come into play. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so clearly it seems like you have a you're gifted. So, and not all the people who do this kind of work probably are in the same way, right. I would think. Mm -hmm. And and then and then there's a related question, which is how many people are practicing this methodology that you use? Um, there are a fair number of past life regressionists in the world, not, not the QHHT people, but also there are like past life regression associations. There are hypnotherapists that do it. Interestingly. Helen Reddy of um, I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar fame um, in her latter years. She, she only died a handful of years ago, like I think in the last five years, but she became a past life regression hypnotherapist um, at the and moved down to somewhere near Australia, New Zealand or something. Um, so there are people who do it. Didn't you mention that you that this stems from something? I thought you told me that it came from something Babylonian or didn't it? Didn't you mention that? um the roots of what of this technique you're using well so in in modern times I, I guess we take it back as far as mesmer and um you know it's just a matter of getting people into their subconscious state but yeah i don't think i mentioned babylon but yes there oh. would be through all of human history anytime we tap into spirit in any kind of method, whether it's lucid dreaming or, you know, trying to do lucid dreaming, trying to do astral projection um, or trying to, um, you know, to to just to to get in contact with spirit. We're doing the. The other thing that happened for me was when my mother passed, I 
almost instantly came to understand why there are cultures that we would consider to be ancestor worshipers, like why there are countries and cultures where you put up an altar um, in your home that includes the pictures of your all your deceased loved ones through the family tree and, you know, like the, the things they do for the Day of the Dead in Mexico or, you know, ver various cultures, China, whatever, um, this acknowledgement of the ancestors because my mother's presence became much more intense in my life posthumously um, more than it was when she was here, right? Um, wow. When she was here, we... We weren't the kind of mother daughter who called each other every day or, you know, texted when that became available. So I would go spend a couple of weeks, three or four times a year. Um, there was that kind of connection. But much of our lives, um, once I left home, much of that time, long distance was very expensive. It didn't happen, you know. So um, but she became very present um, to the she became very present in my life and in my dad's life. So. My parents loved each other, like, unbelievably. Um, they had too many children, and that's not a good thing. Everybody thinks that's warm and fuzzy. It's not good to be one of, of that many children. You don't get enough attention. But for my parents, they adored each other. And even till the end of, of their lives, you know, when he would come home from work, take her in his arms, bend her slightly backward, make out with her, set her upright and go, you know, read the paper while she finished dinner. They loved <laughs> each other. They never spoke unkindly to each other. And suddenly she died with no real explanation. It's a long story, but she was suddenly taken ill and within two weeks she was gone. He was devastated. And um, and he was at that point 74 years old. And um, and she had just, yeah, 72, 74, whatever. And so he's, um, but I'm visiting, so he gets a, a diagnosis of a lung ailment. And so at some point I'm making a point of visiting him often because we know he's not gonna live forever by then. And um, and I would be visiting him and like walking past their bedroom, you just be, oh, sorry, mom, because you like have the sense you bumped into her or I'd be sitting. I was working on my dissertation at that point. I'd be sitting next to him on. A, he'd be in a recliner. I'm on the, the on the couch. I'm facing across him and he's watching Fox News or something. And I'm to working on my dissertation. And. Suddenly, we both look up at the same time and look toward the kitchen doorway where she used to come in from. And we'd both be like, what, mom? And then we'd look at each other and he'd shake his head and start to go, damn, I miss that woman. Right. And it's just but it happened over and over and over again. Her presence was so around him the entire 10 years that he lived longer than her. Wow. And also for me, I so I've had a meditation practice um, for 44 years and um in my meditation, you know, she's, she's gone. I'm, I am her only twin and all the rest of her births were singletons. And so I always thought my mother really did like boys more than girls. And at some level, she liked my ex-husband better than she liked me. And so I just thought that since my twin brother died, I thought that she thought the wrong twin lived. And I thought that my whole life, right? Just, just something I, kind of harbored and never said out loud. And one day I'm meditating and the thought crossed my mind again. And suddenly in the meditation, her presence comes in really strongly and like startle and like, I'm not calling for it, right? I'm not doing anything other than just having that thought. And I feel her presence. And in her tone of voice, she goes, I wouldn't have thought that I was too Catholic. I would have thought God's will was done. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> you're right 
yeah, you, <laughs> right. You were too Catholic. And, and I was like, and then I was like, then I was like, thanks, mom. <laughs> it's like, thank you for telling me different. You know, thank you for setting me straight. Like, oh my God. Oh, you did love me. Okay. Thanks. So, but so that's been there ever since. So a lot of stuff got much more intense in those with that, with her passing. Um, it's like the, the people talk about visitation dreams, you know, someone you love has recently passed and you're asleep and they're suddenly in the dream. Well, my mom, a few days after her death, I get startled awake because her face is right in front of mine, like two inches away from mine, looking at me like she didn't say anything. But it's like she's looking, it's like the face over my crib, like she's looking, like she's looking down over me. And I'm like, start. And that happened like three times in, in, in a short period, like the first couple of months after her death. Um, so those kinds of things started happening a lot. But meditators have things happen in my yeah. life. When yeah. I've meditated more, more stuff happens. When I've gotten too busy with academia, then less stuff happens. If I don't have time for my meditation practice things kind of turned down. But then when I'm going to, you know, when I'm going to do hypnotherapy, I want to be pr I'm present with that client and I want to follow what's coming in spirit so that I'm asking them the right questions and, and getting them to their, to their right answers and then able to give them, you know, the best suggestions about whatever it is and letting it go and moving on. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, you had mentioned, uh, you had mentioned or implied that, you know, you, were involved uh like you know your story about the being a witch mm -hmm. stuff like that right. which which would make sense uh, you're exhibiting right. these kinds of characteristics in this lifetime that you did in past right. ones as well uh but that sort of implies or suggests that you've you've been uh, doing sort of woo-woo stuff for a long time yes um now growing up catholic and um you know i'm post christian at this point in my life but and have been for 20 years now but um growing up catholic i i will say when i did leave home at 18 and get out into what was you know the beginning of the new age at that point um most of the people that were there were either catholic or jewish and there's there's and i'm not sure why the jewish but as far as the catholic stuff goes um, there's a very populated heaven to, to Catholics, right? There's lots of angels and saints and, you know, all sorts of ranks to the angelic realm. And, and so, um, so there's a lot of space in, it's not like being a Baptist fundamentalist where, right. you know, God spoke, he shut up and he does not, you know, just do what he said. No, nobody talks anymore. Um, there was in Catholicism, there were a lot of things. There were people who like my best friend's mother, you know, put flowers in front of her statue of the Virgin Mary and weird things happened to the flowers. Like there was a mm. lot of that, um, a lot of mysticism mm -hmm. in Catholicism. So that's there too. Yeah. They do exorcisms and stuff. They do. And believe in them. Yeah. Um, and still right. Yeah. And canonize people, all that kind of, so they, they won't, I did want to be a Catholic priest. They still don't want me because you have to be male, but um <laughs> But that was also the jet. That was also the beginning of my feminism in this life, right? Nine years old. Why can he be an altar boy and I can't be one? You yeah. Know, well, like I was. I was kind of. I mean, that's fascinating yeah. about the. You're right. I hadn't thought about Catholicism from that perspective. But having the the Catholics that I have known, uh, right, have, have stories, <laughs> interesting yeah. stories, interesting often. stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, but you, it sounds like you were a witch and things like that in past lives as well yeah i mean i'm not in this life at least at present i'm not like a reader in the sense that 
I don't know how, like somebody can pay me and I can turn it on or off for them as much, but yes, um, there clearly I was doing something in multiple past lives and some, one of the past lives I saw, I was, um, kind of a, a woman preaching in a space, a Christian um, preaching in a space where they didn't, you know, allow women. And a lot of this life, I spent 20 years as a pastor. I was, I became Pentecostal in that window because the Catholic church wouldn't ordain me, but the Pentecostals would. And, um, and I, you know, so I was, you know, at least nominally Christian when I first started messing with the Pentecostals and I became pretty hyper vigilantly Christian for a window. But, um, but in all of that, um, there are, in my past life reports, there's the theme of writing and there are themes of being involved in some way with something spiritual or religious um, and, you know, and maybe involved in leadership in it in some way, you know, even if it's the woman who gets driven out of the village because she's not allowed to be a preacher. And um, right. Yeah. One of the things that occurred to me earlier in our discussion was that this sort of hypnotherapy, uh, it seems to be a Western phenomenon. I'm not aware of it in other cultures. Are you? Yeah, um, I'm not. So, and I mean, Mesmer's from somewhere in Europe. I forget where, but it is, it is, um, yeah, it it's does particular seem to, to our culture, it seems. American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, European, North American. Uh, North American. Hmm. I, I don't know that, I mean, other cultures, if, if we take, other cultures haven't been as materialist. So it, it's really arisen in our Western culture in a time of heavy materialism. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know that we would have needed to do that as, as Buddhists in India at any point, past or present. Perhaps um, not, though. But if you can alleviate uh, troublesome issues, mm-hmm. then why wouldn't you? <laughs> right. I mean, it's fascinating because, because you know, you can't treat those kinds of conditions very many other ways. You certainly can't use medicine. And there's mysticism in in all cultures, right? Yeah. If I believe it's probably true to say that all of human history and every culture and climb, um, people have had supernatural experiences or paranormal experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are ghost stories everywhere. You know, um. So, right. But this particular method of how, trying to help someone relax and be able to get in touch with their subconscious is um, is kind of time located. Yeah. If someone has a, a peculiar a phobia or something like that or behavior mm-hmm. that they can't rationally explain, is it something that you can usually address in a single session? Often. Yeah, that's great. Um, if, if there's a lot of trauma involved, so... My experience as the hypnotherapist is that the client's subconscious is in charge. And you kind of, my job is to not sort of overdrive the engine, right? My job is just to to facilitate, but not lead them. And so as I take them into that space and begin to ask them questions and they start to report whatever's coming to them, they start to tell their story, their way. And then, you know, so it's, Go back to your, I lost a little bit of it. Go back to your question again. It was. That was my fault because my mind strayed. No, have you, but what? Have you ever had that experience? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, 
I was asking about whether someone could be cured of an issue in a single session or not. Okay, that's what it was. If the problem the person is facing uh, has to do with recurring nightmares about being chased or something, and then the story that starts to unfold has to do with some form of abuse as a child in this life, what often happens is their subconscious will only let them see so much. So if we're dealing with repressed memory, um, intentionally or unintentionally, like often it's been, I didn't know that was what was going to come up. As the repressed memory starts to be uncovered, they'll stop at a given point and their subconscious won't let them see anymore. And, you know, I'll catch on that. I'll catch on that. That's what's happening. Um, give, you know, lead them away from that, give them positive suggestions, bring them back. And so what one client described it as being like a, a soda or, you know, um, pop or whatever, the um, the water that has bubbles in it. Um, and you unscrew the cap and it starts to, but it was shaken and it starts to fizz out and then you screw the cap back down. So her experience of starting to recall what was giving her the nightmares was there would be this, it would start to, the gas would start to come out and then you have to screw the cap down. And so it took her five sessions um, but she, she wanted to keep going. She wanted to get rid of this, you know, stuff that was waking her up every, every night she was being chased in her dreams. And so uh, in with it, but within five sessions, she was able to recall little by little what had happened to her, who had been the perpetrator long deceased at that point. And, um, and then receive the suggestions to let it go and then be relieved of that and be able to sleep through the night. Do you think that if there's a, a trauma, well, okay, that's cool. Thank you. Uh, if there's a trauma that is related to an event that occurred with another person, mm -hmm. the, the theory goes that we have a karmic link to them. And do you think that if like your methodology or technique here, mm -hmm. if it's effective, does that break the karmic link as well? Don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications to be alerted when part two of this conversation is published. I'll put links in the episode description to any related content. And if you're interested in a reading with me, I'll put a link to that as well. Many sincere thanks to everyone who supports me, especially my YouTube members. Thank you very much. Take care, all the best, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.